Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, Crosspoint, and happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers out there. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is our text this morning. I'm going to be speaking about some brave women, Sarah's brave daughters. First, though, as you're finding 1 Peter chapter 3, let me just offer a pastoral word about uh, some recent events that have come to light in our countries, particularly in our state. I'm sure many of you are aware about the tragic news that has recently come to light about the killing of this young man, young African-American man in Brunswick, Georgia. I believe this happened back in February. And in the news this past week, some video surfaced of his killing. Now, no doubt there will be more facts that come out about this case. And, and just a few days in here, I know very little. Obviously, we know very little about the facts of this case. We do certainly pray that the truth will come to light, the full truth, and that justice will be done in this case, whatever that may look like. But the one fact that I am sure of right now is that certainly there are African-American brothers and sisters that I love in the Lord, in particular in this church, that are very likely distressed and hurting and in much pain as a result of, of this news. Some surely are angry and fearful. In fact, I spoke to, to many of you on the phone this week. And when one part of our body is hurting, all of it should hurt. We mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. So as one of your pastors, to my African-American brothers and sisters in Crosspoint, I want to say that I am so sorry that this happened. I and we grieve with you. I love you. We love you. This church loves you. And I hope and pray that you here at Crosspoint, in this particular little portion of the body of Christ, feel loved and appreciated and cared for. And all I know to do right now is to pray and ask for God's mercy and grace on us as a people. So let's, let's pray along those lines now. Lord, on this beautiful, chilly day in May, we long for the day when you will bring all of your people all the way home. We know the great promise of the gospel, the end of your book, that says that you will gather people from every tribe and tongue and every nation, every pigmentation. On that day, you will right every wrong. You will wipe away every tear. You will heal every wound. You will make straight every crooked path. You will finally and fully glorify every repentant sinner, and you will rightly judge every unrepentant sinner. On that day, Lord, you will make the differences in our skin color. You will make those differences a reason for rejoicing in your beautiful handiwork as you have created your people in such beautiful diversity. Until then, Lord, we pray that as your church, we would strive 
to make this little outpost of heaven called Crosspoint look more like the kingdom that is coming. And we pray that we would do this all to your glory for our good. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now back to our text, 1 Peter chapter 3. During this, this pandemic, when we're not able to gather together, as you've noticed, we've hit the pause button on our series through the, the letter of James, and I've thought it more helpful during this time to just preach individual standalone sermons to, to fasten our hearts to hope and trust during these uncertain times. And this morning, on Mother's Day in particular, I want us to consider this beautiful picture of biblical womanhood that is traced out for us in, in these few verses in 1 Peter 3, the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3. This is not so much a message focused on just mothers, but rather on women, all women. And in particular, a type of women that Peter calls the children of Sarah. And I'm calling these women, as a title for this message, the brave daughters of Sarah. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 in particular. But I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 through 6. Let's read God's word, 1 Peter Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. In this text, in particular in verses 5 and 6, I see four characteristics of these brave women. These women that I'm calling the brave daughters of Sarah. Four characteristics of these brave daughters. The first characteristic that we see is that these brave daughters of Sarah hope in the Lord. They hope in the Lord. One way Peter highlights specifically about how these holy women of old, Sarah and her children, the one way he highlights about how they did hope in the Lord is how they submitted to their own husbands. Note the words of the text. He says there in verse 5 that they submitted to their own husbands. So this, this text is not a blanket call for some type of across the church or across the society submission of all women to all men. Clearly what Peter has in view here for married women is that the way that these women hope, one way they hope in the Lord is by submitting to their own husbands. Which brings the question, what is submission and what isn't submission? This word submission in our culture today is it's, it's like a, a, a hot potato that nobody really wants to handle. So let's think very briefly about what submission is not biblically. Submission is not 
to put the man, the husband, in some sort of authoritarian position of Christ. It's not what it means. Submission does not mean that a woman should give into every demand of her husband, especially if that means leading her into sin. It does not mean that a woman should follow her husband into sin. Submission does not mean that a woman is in any way less than her husband, whether in intelligence or emotional strength or in any area of competency. It's not what it means at all. Submission is not about any deficiency in women as compared to men. Rather, it is about trusting in God's good design, his complementary design for men and women, and in particular in marriage. Submission is a picture of the Trinity. In fact, this is the exact point that Paul points us to in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is a very involved and complex chapter about when a woman can speak in church and head coverings and women prophesying and praying and order and gathered worship. But he makes a point in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 that is, is very important to our understanding of the point behind submission in marriage. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians chapter, 3, chapter 11 verse 3. Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So he's making this point about the submission of a woman to her husband in the context of gathered worship and how that should inform how a woman handles herself or, or comports herself in gathered worship. And he's saying at the beginning of the verse that the head of a man is Christ and the head of, of a wife is her husband. And then at the end of this verse, so as to make sure that men do not misunderstand what submission is, that it's not a less than, he says that the head of Christ, the Son, is God. So he's saying within this triune fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are co-equally, co-equal, eternally co-glorious, there is a kind of order, a submission that does not in any way detract from the worth or the glory of the Son. And so he's making this analogy that the, the submission between a woman and her husband is a kind of picture, a kind of shadow of the fellowship and the relationship within the Trinity itself. So that's what submission is a picture of the Trinity. Another thing that submission is, is a kind of picture of the gospel itself, which is the point, I think, that, that, Paul, that, that Peter is making. He's saying that, a, that submission to a husband is serving a greater purpose of hoping in the Lord. And what he's grounding this in is the fact that it's God's good design for men and women in marriage to showcase the gospel. That the way men and women are to interact with one another is actually a picture of something far greater than just social order. This is Paul's point, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, when he's speaking about the relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. And he says to the husband, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and wives, submit to your husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. And then he says in verses 31 and 32, he summarizes it by saying that this marriage relationship is actually a picture of something far greater. Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32, let me read it. 
He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Moses there in Genesis chapter 2. And then verse 32, look what he says. This mystery is profound. The oneness of man and woman in marriage and the relationship, the complementary nature of men and women in marriage. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the way that a woman interacts with her husband and the way that a husband serves and leads his wife is meant to be a kind of picture of the gospel itself. Now we know that no earthly man leads his wife perfectly and no woman submits to her husband perfectly. But the point is, is that the relationship in this fallen world, as we are redeemed and made one with Christ, our relationship between men and women in marriage is meant to be a kind of picture of the gospel itself. And the point that Peter is making here is one way that women hope in the Lord is by the means of living this way with their husbands. So how does submitting to your husband relate to hoping in God directly? Tom Schreiner, a noted New Testament scholar and professor, helps us on this in his commentary on this verse. He says, listen to this, the most important comment in the verse is that these women put their hope in God. This comment is instructive for it informs us that these women, listen to this, did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were superior to them intellectually or spiritually. No, rather, they submitted to their husbands because they were confident that God would reward all those who put their trust in him. In other words, when a woman, a holy woman, like these brave daughters of Sarah, submits to her imperfect, often feeble, often fumbling husband, she is demonstrating a kind of fierce feminine strength because she's actually putting her hope in God, whom she trusts to use the imperfect leadership of her husband for his greater design. Submission to an earthly husband is not ultimate. Hoping in God is, and God has designed the feminine soul to submit in this way to showcase the greater thing, which is hope in God. Submission, friends, biblically understood, is an indication of the strength of the feminine soul, not the weakness. Because when a woman does this, even to an imperfect husband, she's actually pointing to a greater hope, which is found in God alone. And to my single sisters, I just want to say, know that marriage is just one way, not the only way, that the feminine soul hopes in God. A single woman is in no way lacking as compared to her married sister. Psalm, 90, Psalm 84, verse 11 and 12 says this, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. None of that is dependent on whether or not a woman is married. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
To desire to be married is a good and righteous thing, but to be married is not the epitome of human existence. If God gives it to us, it's a gift. But if he doesn't, we are in no way less than. And before we move on, just one final word of encouragement to any discouraged sisters. Sarah was not a perfect example of this type of hope. Even though she's held up in the New Testament here by Peter as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to commend Sarah as this holy woman of old. And he's saying, be like her and be like her spiritually. She was not. Be encouraged. Anyone that's discouraged with the state of your soul in these matters, be encouraged that Sarah was not a perfect example. But yet the scripture speaks so graciously of her. Remember Hagar. Remember Genesis chapter 16. Sarah was the wife of Abraham, who was this man that God promised to give a nation, to give a progeny, to give, to give a nation, a family, to make a family through him, to give a child through him and his wife, even though they were advanced in years. And they're well into their 90s now, and no child had come, and they were discouraged. And Sarah was discouraged, and she concocts a plan for her husband Abraham to have a child with one of her servants, Hagar. It was Sarah's idea. Sarah was wavering, it seemed, in her faith. And then once Hagar, this servant of hers, did get pregnant by her husband, then she takes out her anger and contempt on her, on her servant Hagar. It went terribly. But yet, God here in 1 Peter chapter 3 doesn't bring up these bad points where Sarah seemed to waver on this, but he speaks of her through Peter with this gracious disposition. He calls her a holy woman of God who hoped in him. God is remembering Sarah favorably in 1 Peter chapter 3. This reminds me of how Paul describes Abraham in Romans chapter 4. It says that this is how Paul describes Abraham, her husband, who also just fumbled around in obedience to God in Genesis. Paul says about Abraham in Romans chapter 4 that he did not weaken in faith and was fully convinced that God would do what he said he would do. But when I read Genesis and the account of Abraham, after God speaks to him, you think that when God speaks to you audibly, it would be strengthening of your faith. But then just one chapter later, he lies about Sarah being his wife to this king who he feared would kill him because his wife was pretty. He does that not just once, but he does it twice. And he doesn't have enough leadership in his, in his body to, to convince his wife of this bad idea about sleeping with her servant and, you, and going through this other plan outside of God's promise. But yet, how does God speak about Abraham in the New Testament? He speaks positively about Abraham. He says that he didn't weaken in faith. He was fully convinced. And to that we say, yes, eventually, I mean, he kind of got there. The point I think this makes is that there are no perfect examples in the Bible except for Jesus. And when God brings these people up, these Old Testament patriarchs, these weak and failing and fumbling and bumbling examples of the faith in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's not like God forgot what happened in Genesis. It's God's gracious disposition towards his people. He speaks positively of them. 
So what should we take from that, friends? Be encouraged. Be encouraged if you failed. God is not up there with his arms folded. He has a gracious disposition towards weak Abraham and weak Sarah, and he holds them up as examples of the faith. God has a gracious disposition towards his people. It reminds me, just to kind of put a picture in your mind, it reminds me of rehearsal dinners. And you know, I, I, as a pastor, I get to go to a lot of, I do a lot of weddings and the night before the wedding, you go to a rehearsal dinner, and that's obviously the time when the parents will get up and they'll say something about their daughter or their son that is about to be married. And the speeches that the family gives, that the parents give about their children are always gracious, always wonderful, always highlighting all of the good things about that person, that child that, that's grown into a, a young person that's about to be married. Now we all know that all of us, nobody knows us better than our parents. And we all know that our parents could bring up a whole host of things about negatives, about times when they were very worried or very upset at us in our rebellion in our youth. But when the parent is speaking about a child on the night before they're about to be married, it's always full of graciousness, always full of good, always full of love and encouragement. And that's the way God sees his people. He sees Abraham and he sees Sarah. He knows that we're not perfect examples, but he holds them up and he says hope in God like this imperfect holy woman Sarah let that be an encouragement to any sister that feels like she's failing over and over and over again so holy women these brave daughters of Sarah hope in the Lord secondly they pursue an imperishable beauty look at verses three and four again just briefly do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now let's make sure we understand this text before we look at it a little bit more closely. Peter is not saying that you shouldn't braid your hair or wear gold jewelry. I can imagine maybe a sister listening to this now with braided hair wearing a gold ring and you're wondering if, if, if you're about to get the hammer. No, I don't think Paul or Peter here is, is, is condemning the braiding of hair or the putting on of jewelry because if he, if he was outlawing that, he would also be outlawing clothing. And so he's, he's clearly not doing that. I think we can insert contextually in verse 3, he's saying don't let your adorning merely be external. Don't let that be the only way that you beautify yourself. But much more importantly, verse 4, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, dear ones, there is so much we could say about this. Suffice it to say that the world has twisted femininity and beauty. Satan, our enemy, has been stalking the daughters of Eve since the garden. And one of the primary ways he stalks you is through the fleshly, sinful, carnal brokenness of men. He wants to objectify you. He wants to whisper into your soul that your worth in this world is determined by your external appearance. That is a lie. Now, this verse is not condemning the desire for physical attractiveness. The Song of Solomon and other parts of the Bible speak very positively of beauty. But this verse is a warning against vanity. 
Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And friends, I don't think I need to spend a long time convincing us that we live in a vain world that worships at the, the, the broken altar of, of, of fake airbrushed beauty, and it wrecks the souls of the daughters of God. This first note is pointing to something much more beautiful. It's pointing God's daughters to a better and more beautiful type of beauty, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And what does he mean by gentle? Christ describes himself as gentle. He says that his heart is gentle and lowly. And it says that this quiet spirit is a beautiful thing in a woman. It doesn't mean that a woman needs to necessarily be in her personality or disposition quiet as if she can't be outgoing. It's a quiet spirit. It's a type of heart that is, that is filled with the peace of God. Depending on how God has made different women, a woman may be very outgoing and very, talk, very talkative. And that can be a wonderful gift of the Lord. But the quiet spirit here is speaking of an internal disposition where you are fastened to the truth of the gospel and the peace that passes all understanding and the storms of life don't toss you to and fro. Just one final pastoral word on this point before we move on. I just, as the father of a daughter and the husband of a wife and the pastor of many, many women, I'm just sorry that you have to live in a world where pornography is literally always lurking at the door, where the objectification of females and the female figure is literally constantly in front of us, where we as a culture can't seem to advertise anything unless it is hawked to us by some scantily clad beautiful, supposedly beautiful woman, that is a sign of the sickness and the sinfulness and the brokenness of our culture. And the encouragement here for the brave daughters of Sarah that are growing up in an Instagrammed, airbrushed, filtered world that is lying to you daily. Fight against it. Swim against its current. And pursue something far, far greater, far more eternal, far more beautiful. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Thirdly, characteristics of the brave daughters of Sarah is they do good. They do good. Look again at verse Verse 5 and 6, it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the third way that the, the brave daughters of Sarah hope in the Lord, honor the Lord, is they do good. Now this verse is not saying that women are saved by good works. We know that. We remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, 
Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, we know that we're not saved by our good works, even though here Peter is commending these brave daughters of Sarah to be like Sarah and do good. So what's he saying? He's not saying that your doing good will save you, but he's saying very much in the same line as what we've looked at in James recently, like James chapter 2, verse 17, that says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What is James saying? Is James contradicting Romans? Is he contradicting Ephesians? No. He's looking at another side of the Christian life, where Paul is looking at the freeness of justification, the freeness of salvation. James is looking at the imperative of our sanctification, that our good works, our obedience, Obedience must flow from the free gift of grace that we receive with the gift of faith and trust in Jesus. So good works here of these holy women, of these brave daughters of Sarah, good works like every other Christian give evidence to the fact that we are saved. It doesn't save us. We know, friends. And this is true not just for these daughters of Sarah, not just for women, but this is true for every soul, that the only way that anybody can be saved is not by their good works, but by trusting in what Christ has done. Friends, we are dead in our works. We are dead in our hearts. We are dead in our sin, dead to God, unable to obey him. And the good news of the gospel is that when God determines to save a person, he makes them alive. He gives them a new heart. And with that new birth, that new heart is the gift of faith, whereby now that person is enabled to see and behold and trust in Jesus and trust in him alone for their right standing, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that Jesus is the only one that did good, and that he laid down his perfect life, his obedient life on the cross as a righteous sacrifice to bear God's wrath for our disobedience. And his work on the cross satisfies God's wrath, and because he's good and sinless and perfect, God raised him from the dead, and now he's alive, the victor over sin, death, and the grave. And all those that God gives new life to are enabled to trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. That's the good news of the gospel. But when God gives us that new heart, we are now enabled to do good. And what Peter is saying here to the daughters of Sarah is he's saying, do good. And that goodness is not the reason for your salvation. It's the result of your salvation. So what does doing good look like for a brave daughter of Sarah, it looks like this fierce feminine strength that nurtures people, that has an eye for the hurting and the vulnerable. If she's married, it looks like supporting and encouraging and loving her husband and raising her children. She may, it, look, it might look like, in addition to working inside the home, possibly working outside the home. And she resists, this woman, the temptation to judge her sisters whose life may look different. If she stays at home as a stay-at-home mom, praise the Lord. She doesn't judge her sister who is also a mother but works outside the home. If she does work outside the home and raises children, she doesn't judge her sister who stays at home with her children. She's gracious. Both of them are gracious towards each other as brave sisters and brave daughters of Sarah. 
She models biblical femininity and rejects this satanic version of beauty. She does not post provocative things on social media or do things to draw attention to herself for vain, sinful glory. She points people to Christ by the way she holds herself. She brings a cool head to tense friendships and disputes. She does not, listen, she does not lower her standard because of the men around her. She does not buy into the lie that she is defined by the objectification of her physical appearance. And she doesn't buy into the lie that her womanhood is defined or completed by marriage or children. She resists jealousy and envy that stalks her on social media as she peers at the filtered perfect lives of her online friends. She knows that it's not true and she remembers that all of us need Jesus. She gives herself another's grace when she or others inevitably fail to live up to these standards. She lives by the grace of the gospel. Grace upon grace upon grace. The daughters of Sarah strive to ooze the gospel, to ooze out grace, to ooze out 1 Corinthians 15.10 that says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. She's the type of woman who refuses to gossip. In fact, her ears are the graveyard where gossip goes to die. She, these brave daughters of Sarah, is the type of woman who assumes the best of others. But she is not naive or surprised when she hears of the weaknesses or comes in contact with the failures of others because she has a good biblical doctrine of sin and she understands the frailty of all humanity and that even the best and the most spiritually mature among us are weak and wounded, sick and sore. So she gives more grace and her doctrine of the grace of the gospel means that this grace covers a multitude of sin and she hopes in God by doing good and modeling this type of life as the Spirit works in her. Praise God for women like this, these brave daughters of Sarah. I think we have a church full of them here at Cross Point. May the Lord increase their number among us. And finally, the final characteristic mentioned of these brave daughters of Sarah is they do not fear. Specifically, they do not fear anything that is frightening. I love the honesty of the Bible. I'm grateful for the honesty of the Bible. It admits the very fact that Peter is calling them not to fear anything that is frightening. Admits that there are some things in the world that are frightening. It just tells us to remember the gospel so that we don't, because we don't have to be afraid of these things that are frightening. Now, there is a particular vulnerability, I think, to being a woman in this world. And at what I'm about to say, I hope I don't come across as chauvinistic. What am I saying? I'm saying that women, in God's design, 
in the way that he has made women and men complementary. Men intended to lead and to protect and to care for and to serve and women to support and encourage and submit to their husbands. The way God has designed men and women and then the result of the fall has put women not in a less than but in a particular kind of vulnerable position as they interact with this fallen, sinful, masculine world. What do I mean? Is that women, not in any way less than in their value, are, however, often finding themselves in the position of reacting to a fallen, male-dominated world, which means that women are often reacting to the sin and the foolishness of men, which puts them in a position of, I think, being more vulnerable to fear. I think all of us fear things on some level or another. But men, the things that men in their foolishness fear, we just have to worry about our own stupidity. Women have to worry about their own as a natural, just a fallen person, but they also have to worry about the foolishness of the person that they are yoked to in marriage because he's supposed to be the leader. So she's got her own frailty to worry about and the guy that's leading her supposedly and often not very well. And that puts women in a particularly vulnerable position. And so this word, of do not fear anything that is frightening, I think in some ways is a, is a kind of chastising word to men because women are particularly have to fearing the future that's frightening because they oftentimes are saddled next to guys who don't know which way is up. And that can be frightening. Now this isn't a sermon on how men should lead their wives. That, we don't have time for that. But I just want to acknowledge that I think This is often a challenge for women, and understandably so. Women have to negotiate life in a world where, because of the sinfulness and failure of men, they are always having to react and read and negotiate through life accordingly. And what's God's word through Peter to these brave daughters of Sarah? He's saying, do not fear. God's words to his daughters in this fallen world is do not fear. Psalm 38, why can they not fear? Listen to these words of hope, these gospel words. This is why these brave daughters of Sarah cannot fear, because God is on their side. Listen to this encouragement from Psalm 38, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Now, of course, that passage applies to all Christians. But I want to I zero it in on the heart of a woman who may be fearful, who's, who's, who's racked with fear as she's trying to serve the Lord. And she's maybe yoked to somebody who's not leading her well. Or she's wondering what an unknown future will look like. Know this and let this verse just permeate in your feminine soul that the Lord for all of his people will fulfill his purpose for you, dear brave daughter of Sarah. Why can one of the Lord's daughters not fear? Because of the hope and the promise of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
brave daughter of Sarah. In you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul, speaking of his suffering, says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul's point there, the context of 2 Timothy is Paul's suffering. I think there's a direct application to the suffering of any Christian, but I'm applying it here to women who are in this world that wants to objectify them and destroy them, and they are tempted to fear the future. Do not be ashamed. Know who you have believed and be convinced that he is able to guard that until that day. And then finally, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. We read it so often here. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Of course, that applies to all of God's children all the time. But I want to zero it in onto the heart of the brave daughters of Sarah that are out there. And know that as you stare into an uncertain future, as you hold your family and your marriage and your future together, that God is holding you. And you need not fear, because if God is for you, who can be against you? Brave daughters of Sarah, on this Mother's Day, as we celebrate biblical womanhood in our church, hope in the Lord, pursue an imperishable beauty, do good, and do not fear. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my sisters within the sound of my voice that by your Holy Spirit you would take my weak, imperfect words and put steel in the spine of my sisters. Encourage them. Lord, I thank you for a church full of daughters of Sarah, brave women who hope in the Lord. Lord, encourage them. Give energy to their work and and, and zeal to their spirits. Lord, I do pray that they would hope in you, that they would pursue an imperishable beauty, that they would set their hands to doing good, bringing glory to your name through the way they live as women in this broken world, and they would not fear anything that is frightening. Lord, use this picture of biblical womanhood in this church to make us all more like Jesus. Lord, we could preach a whole series of sermons on men and our responsibility to serve and to lay down our lives. Lord, if you have used these words to convict any men of their failure as husbands or brothers, Lord, I pray that you would wound them and heal them and bring about repentance in their lives. And before the sun sets on this day, that they would repent to their wives and that you would bring healing and wholeness and that you would raise up a whole army of brave daughters of Sarah in Crosspoint, all for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, so that we as a body would be more effective in reaching the lost. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Crosspoint. We'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing. Have a great week.